Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So I'd say in the past 40, 30 years, there's been a, uh, there's been a transformation going on in the West, and in, particularly in the United States, about what it means to be a grown-up. I'm talking grown man, grown woman, because there used to be these scripts that you'd follow, right? And you, you'd met these certain markers, and that would mean you were an adult. But nowadays, those scripts have been thrown out the window, and it's sort of confusing for you young people to figure out, well, am I, am I grown up now, or am I in this in-between phase? Am I adolescent? I don't, it's really confusing. Anyways, my guest today takes us on this whirlwind tour of the history of modern adulthood, going all the way back to the, you know, the 1500s, so we can see how adulthood or the concept of adulthood has, has changed throughout time. And perhaps give us some insights on how young people can navigate adulthood in the 21st century. His name is Stephen Mintz. He's a professor of history at uh, University of Texas, and he wrote a book called The Prime of Life, A History of Modern Adulthood. And today on the podcast, we're going to discuss what it means to be an adult, whether work is involved, owning a home, kids, marriage, uh, the, the gamut. We're going to talk about it. Really interesting discussion. So without further ado, Stephen Mintz and The Prime of Life. Stephen Mitz, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So your book is The Prime of Life, A History of Adulthood. And you mentioned in the book, and you're right about this, that there hasn't really been a history of modern adulthood in the West written. There's been a lot of books about childhood or adolescence, but but not adulthood. Why why do you think that is? Even though this is like a big part of our life, uh, adulthood, and we don't really pay much attention to it. No one says life begins at 40 anymore, at least not without irony. Whether you're young or you're middle-aged or older, there's a tremendous amount of ambivalence about adulthood because adulthood is associated with slowing down, with being in a rut, with stagnation, and above all, with stress. And so no one wants to talk about that. No one wants to be it, at least as it was, quote-unquote, traditionally defined. And by traditionally defined, I mean in the earlier 20th century. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I feel like there's a lot of hand-wringing going on today in the media. Books are written about it, about boomerang kids, how uh, young people aren't transitioning to adulthood. Um, But it seems like this idea that we have of adulthood 
came from the post-World War II era, which was you, know, you graduate high school, you go to college, and then you buy a house, get married, have kids, and you're an adult. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, it's become much, adulthood, becoming adults become much more protracted. But what I think is interesting in your book, you show that this sort of post-World War II idea of adulthood is almost a, it's an exception to the rule of how people became adults in modern times in, in the West. Can you explain what sort of the varying uh, ideas of adulthood have been throughout history before World War II? Well, it's, of course, utterly shocking to think that the typical American woman in 1970, we're not talking about the distant past, but 1970 was married by the age of 21. And her husband was typically married by the age of 23. So by the middle 20s, these young people had two or three kids. They had a house. They had a job that they were intending to stay in for the rest of their lives. And that image of adulthood has become uh, the kind of norm that many today feel we're deviating from. But of course, it's anything but a timeless norm. The fact is that throughout American history, and really, indeed, throughout Western history, growing up has been a protracted and difficult process. There is nothing unique about how difficult it is to grow up today. But furthermore, uh, in that earlier world, adulthood was not frowned upon. Adulthood was something aspired to. Hard as it is to believe, people wanted to look older, not younger, in the past. And they associated adulthood not with settling down, but rather with maturity, responsibility, worldliness, knowingness. In other words, uh, what I'll call the Cary Grant version uh, or the Catherine Hepburn version of adulthood, something to aspire to, not something to recoil from. And what happened? Uh, what, what sort of cultural, sociological, I mean, I'm sure economic changes, I mean, it's very complex, but why did our view of adulthood as something to aspire to transition to something like, man, I, I'm going to go get plastic surgery so I can get rid of the crow's feet and I'm going to get a tummy tuck and I'm going to buy the Ferrari. I mean, what, what happened? Well, partly for very good reasons. That is, the image of adulthood increasingly became a kind of straight jacket. And what I mean by that is individuals were finding it more and more difficult to live lives that they themselves found to be fulfilling. This was, of course, particularly true for women, women who married at the age of 19 or 20, uh, had three children by the time they were 25. This was the generation that divorced at extremely high rates. They found that life constraining. But there's something else going on, and that's really the triumph of youth culture. It's hard to remember, but up until the late 1950s or early 1960s, adult culture dominated 
uh, American tastes. Nat King Cole or Pat Boone were still at the top of the charts at the end of the 1950s. But what happened, of course, because we all uh, experienced this, is that youth culture became much more attractive and utterly displaced the more traditional adult culture, which anyway adults were retreating from uh, in the face of television, suburban living, and the like. Interesting. So that's why today uh, you'll have parents and children who have the same musical taste. Like they'll both love rock bands, for example. Which, which is extraordinarily shocking to me. Uh, you know, I, I was born in 1953, and my father, who participated in World War II, that experience seemed immensely remote from me. That was like the, the where my my children are way further from the Vietnam War, uh-huh. and yet I expect them to be aware of it. Yeah, and it's sort of that that theme that that breakdown between generations was like the theme of a lot of movies in the 1950s, right? Uh, like Rebel Without a Cause, where you have the angsty G- James Dean, you know, is like, oh, it's breaking me up. You don't understand me. That was that's what it was like, but it's not so much like that anymore. Well, I think you're exactly right, but the psychological consequences, I think, are interesting. That is, it's become more difficult for young people to cut the umbilical cord and truly establish an independent identity. And if your culture is, quote-unquote, derivative of your parents' culture, if your parents are in constant touch with you, which in many ways is a good thing, but it's complicated, of course, psychologically. How do you develop an independent identity? Well, you do it often in transgressive ways that aren't positive. And, uh, you know, some of the transgressions are pretty minor, tattooing, body piercing, and the like. And some of the transgressions are a little more significant, uh, of which the challenges of growing up, of, of assuming financial responsibility for oneself, for example, have become more difficult. So I thought it was interesting, uh, in your first chapter, you discuss um, the sort of life stages that we've, we've tried to break down life into different stages, and you, you talk about some uh, famous people who uh, didn't have the, the traditional, what we call the traditional uh, transition in adulthood, where they left mom and dad, started life on their own, and that was it. Uh, they, there were a lot of famous boomerang kids, even in the 19th century. Um, I guess one of them was uh, Henry David Thoreau was one. He left his house, parents' house, and then came back. Was it was it was that the reason why we transitioned to this idea of you know you you graduate high school you graduate college you're off on your own was it because of economics really that you could get a job that could support you and a, and a person and before World War II and now it's much more harder to land a job quickly that can sustain you and a, another family. Let me offer a somewhat different perspective. We, in many ways have juvenilized the young. 
And what I mean about that, I mean, that seems uh, contradictory, right? They have sex younger, they're more likely to take drugs or to drink. Uh, how could it be that we've juvenilized them? We expect children to stay home to the age of 18. This was scarcely true in the past. Kids left home, came back, left home, came back. Let me give a couple of examples. Mark Twain's father died when he was 12. He then went to work. He worked in St. Louis. He worked in Washington, D.C. He worked in New York City. He worked in Keokuk, Iowa, all by the age of 18. Uh, I mean, it would be hard to imagine a parent allowing anything like that. Or take Herman Melville. By the age of 21, his father went insane when he was 12. He left home. He worked as a cabin boy on a whaling ship. He jumped ship. He was captured by cannibals. He somehow escaped. Uh, he made it his way home at the age of 21. I mean, these are extraordinary experiences. Uh, when Melville writes in Moby Dick that a whaling ship was my Harvard and my Yale College. He's not kidding. That is, at ages when we expect kids to be in a protected, secure environment, in close touch with their parents, kids showed remarkable independence. Now, that independence was punctuated by return home, uh, which had its own psychological consequences. But they assumed that young people had a certain kind of fortitude and independence that we do not assume today. You talk about this in your book as well, about how college has changed in the past 30, 20 years, where uh, it's become much more um, encompassing. Like we, we basically, you, you transition from one parent set of parents to parents that are, bas uh, that are college bureaucrats. Um, essentially. We, we think of college as a transitional space. It's a coming-of-age experience for many young people. Um, nowhere is this more evident than in drinking. You know, we at least legally bar drinking prior to the age of 21, and so college becomes the place where many kids learn to drink and over-drink. Uh, it's, it's an interesting environment. Uh, the notion, uh, you know, I grew up in the generation that overthrew what used to be called parietals, a word that doesn't exist anymore. These were rules like three feet on the floor if a woman was in your dorm room, <laughs> or that the dorm room door had to be open the size of a wastebasket at all times. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for uh, students today to imagine that there was a world like that where women had to check into their dorm at night and that there were curfews for women students that were not for men. I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, story about how that got uh, overthrown. And what an irony that parents who themselves threw off all kinds of constraints are placing new constraints on their own kids. 
Yeah. Why do you think that is? It is just that we've were maybe they the parents saw what the freedom was like, and they said, "Well, that's not that great." I remember the dumb things that I did when I was a kid, and I don't want my kid to do that. I I think that's part of it. But the big thing is that parenting in general has become much more anxiety-ridden, and the anxieties begin even before a child is born. We have the capability in pregnancy of testing for over 700 conditions. We can treat a handful of those conditions, and the effect of this is to scare prospective parents to death. Then, after the child is born, we have fears that date from the 1970s of all kinds of horrible things that can happen to your kid. Stranger abduction, abuse in daycare centers or even in churches. Uh, All of this creates an atmosphere of anxiety, and that has then been reinforced by an increasingly entrepreneurial, competitive economy, an economy where many parents feel that if they don't give their own child a leg up, their kid will fail in the race to success. So there is a view, I think, among many parents today that their child is a project to be perfected and other people's children are problems that need to be dealt with. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, have, maybe there hasn't been any research done on this. Um, for those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. 
That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. But I mean, what effect are we actually, I, mean, I guess it is that what the result of that, what you said earlier is that we're juvenilizing uh, adults or young adults in a way because of this. Young and this, of course, makes it much more difficult to develop the kind of independence that this society demands, but also that's necessary for the kind of maturation that people need to go through. Uh, you know, it is not easy to throw away all the supports of life not easy to throw away the roadmap and rule book and to chart one's own destiny. But that's what somebody needs to do. And if parents are always there to uh, cushion the blows, how can you develop that kind of radical independence that this society really does require? And so it often comes in sort of traumatic ways uh, where kids who have not been accustomed to failure or stress experience it in devastating ways. So yeah, you're seeing, you're, I mean, you're seeing some of the consequences today of uh, increased suicide, uh, depression, anxiety amongst uh, young people. That's um, pr- sure a lot of that has been contributed by their parents being overprotective of them and micromanaging their life so they can get a leg up. You know, one of the great ironies in medical history 
is the reason that polio became a terrible problem in the 1950s was that parents were cleaning their houses more than ever in the past. Uh, Polio had always been prevalent, but when you get it when you're extremely young, in infancy or very early childhood, it doesn't leave any lasting effects in general. But when it's delayed, it has horrible consequences. I would just suggest that this is a kind of analogy, that uh, increasing independence at an early age has good consequences at later ages. Let me give one more example. In many, quote-unquote, underdeveloped societies, kids do chores at extraordinarily young ages, two or three. The children are often terrible at those chores, but parents have them do those chores because they know kids at that age want to help out, and if they do it at that age, they will help out later. We wait And then we have to force kids to do chores, which they do only in the most uh, resistant manner possible. So we wind up in, we're trying to help them, we're trying to protect them, we're trying to free them, but sometimes things work out exactly the opposite of what we hope. You said something earlier that I just want to elaborate on briefly. By almost every measure, kids are better off today. Their crime rates are down, smoking's down, test scores are up, graduation rates are up. They're better off in almost every way except the ways that matter. We have depression beginning at much earlier ages. We have kids showing signs of stress, debilitating stress, at very early ages. We have growing numbers of kids who seem to have difficulties in interpersonal relationships. So you could be better off in the ways we can easily count and still be worse off in the ways that really matter. I'm, cu- I'm curious if, if you came across this in your research, but do you, do you think there is uh, going to be a generational backlash? And what I mean by that is these you know kids my age, I guess I'm not a kid, I'm, a, I'm 32 years old, I'll be 33. Uh, I have my own kids. <laughs> um, but you know, millennials who are raised by baby boomer parents who are helicopter parents and really micromanage their life, do you think these millennials who are starting to have kids are going to do the like swing the opposite direction and be a little more, um, liber- I don't know, free? Uh, you know, not as not as uh, micromanaging with their kids' life. Well, John Edwards, the uh, failed presidential candidate, uh, a disgraced presidential candidate, spoke of two Americas, and increasingly we're seeing two Americas with very different life trajectories. And it's very much rooted in education and class. It is not an accident that 80% of the kids in the Ivy League have two parents who've never been divorced, uh, which is wholly unlike the rest of society. Uh, 
we have a, a more affluent, better educated uh, population that leads a much more stable lifestyle uh, and that has lots of resources to shower on its children and has sufficient money to deal with the work-family tensions that beset everybody. And then we have another very large segment of the population that lives amid a kind of swirl of relationships that has a lot of instability in their lives, that live paycheck to paycheck, but sometimes that paycheck's not there. And we're increasingly seeing these two routes through adulthood. And it's scary because as a society, we know how much this society has depended on a stable family network to help us when we're old. And if you don't have that, who's going to take care of you? Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a great that's a great point. Um, so basically, there we we have two today. We have two trajectories of adulthood, and it all depends on social class, right, or economic class. Well, let me give you an example that I know well, which is involves higher education. In higher education, all the benefits flow to having a bachelor's degree and increasingly having a master's degree or some other professional degree. But the benefits only come if you have a degree. But of all the kids who enter college, only a little less than 60% will ever get a college degree. And it's much, much worse at community colleges where the overwhelming majority of students who enter a community college will never get an associate's degree. All these kids are getting is debt. Now, there's been a lot of talk about debt, but debt can be a good investment. All of us uh, go into debt to buy a house, often to buy a car, because we view it as an investment in our future. College debt is a real problem, not for people who graduate from name-brand institutions. They'll be able to pay off their debts. Uh, the Obamas didn't do so poorly. Uh, but it's the people who never got a degree. So they never got the benefits. So even if their college debt is relatively low, they are going to be hard-pressed to repay it. And that's going to have consequences not only for them, but uh, also for our country as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, I uh, am a historian, and I'm a college professor, but I'm also an academic administrator. And the job I've been given, the task I've been assigned in what's really the second largest uh, public university system in the country is affordability access and student success. We need to get more students for. It'll be good for them, and it will be good for society. Let's uh, shift uh, topics here a bit, um, and let's talk about friendship, because it's something that yep. we don't think too much about when we think about adulthood, because if you do the, the survey said that most adults don't have very many friends, I think one 
uh, is what it is. But at a, at a previous time, adulthood was a time of when you had your most stable relationships and men, people, even men included, had lots of friends, maybe three or four. How We watch friends on TV and in real life, we have lots and lots of casual acquaintances and we have lots and lots of work colleagues. Um, now, increasingly, we've seen a gender divide in friendship. That is, women are much more likely than men to engage in intimate conversation with a small number of close intimates, and men whose lives are tend to be much more work-centric, uh, tend to have a lot of work connections that don't provide the kind of friendship that we used to associate with friendship. My father recently died at the age of 95. When he was 94, he had four high school buddies that he had grown up with in Detroit and were still alive and still in communication at the age of 94. Today, they're all dead, unfortunately. But these people had shared a whole lifetime of experiences. They lived in proximity. They were able to communicate whenever they wanted to. And that is much harder to do these days. Our friendship networks are spread nationally or internationally. People are busy. It's hard to figure out how to communicate. Email is okay, but it doesn't convey tone very well. And anyway, people don't tend to write those lengthy letters that Victorians loved to write. <laughs> so people find it difficult to sustain the kinds of friendships with deep disclosure and sharing of feeling and uh, providing day-to-day -day help and guidance that friendship used to mean. Uh, now, friendship can take many forms, and there is a form of male friendship that involves bantering and joking. That's a fantastic form of friendship, but if it's, but friendship Ultimately, I think, and I say this with great hesitance, but I think requires face-to-face -face time and that it really can't be totally replaced by Facebook and other forms of social media. Those are wonderful for keeping fossil friendships alive, but at some point you better activate those friendships or they're not real. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting too that another reason why friendship has gotten harder in the modern world is um, we've become more family focused. So men in particular are encouraged uh, to spend more time with their families than say their grandfathers or great grandfathers who might have gone off, you know, a couple nights a week to go play poker with the boys or go to a lodge night. Uh, now men are encouraged to stay home and spend time with their family. It's interesting uh, that this remains the case. Women are much more likely to be, for example, in book clubs 
or other kinds of activities like yoga than men, even though the male breadwinner conception of gender roles is broken down, uh, many men continue to hold to that vision. It's, it's evident in a variety of ways, and there's reasons why people do it. Uh, men earn much higher incomes than women, partly because they work longer hours in, uh, more, uh, in very stressful fields. And uh, they still view their job as the key to the family's financial success. But that comes at a cost. Cost is no friends. <laughs> and and uh, ironically, if you put too many burdens on a lonely life raft, that life raft will sink. For most men, they say that their closest intimate is their spouse, their partner. And if you place all the weight on that relationship, it's more than that relationship can bear. So I think uh, reviving friendship, reclaiming friendship is not just a good thing in the abstract. It'll actually produce better intimate relationships in the long run. Yeah, it seems like it's great for everything. It's great for you, your emotional needs. Uh, it's great for your relationship. Uh, and I feel like you know, there was a time when friendships, yeah, like you said, provided a, a support, a social support. Whenever you were sick or you needed help, you didn't, you didn't have to go to a therapist. You didn't have to go uh, rely on paid services to, you know, for someone to mow your lawn. Like your friends would come over and do that for you. But we, we don't have that anymore. So we have to go out and to the marketplace to get these services that we once would get from family and friends. Precisely, more people, of course, will die from loneliness than will die of cancer. Uh, we may call it something else, but there is no question that the social isolation that our society has uh, contributes to a lot of problems with our psychological and even our physical well-being. You know, one thing that's weird about our society is we don't recognize friendship. That is, no obituary mentions who your friends are. But we also legally castigate friendship. In the 18th century, nobody saw nepotism as a bad thing. Uh, networks were how people got jobs in general. Uh, we've eliminated nepotism for good reasons. But one message that we're sending is that friendship should never be instrumental. Uh, they shouldn't actually do things for you. They should provide psychological support and comfort. Uh, they should provide laughter in your life and sociability, but they shouldn't actually do anything for you. But friendships historically did lots of things for people. And in the real world that we exist in, uh, we all know that having a great LinkedIn network is a great way to get your kid a job or to find a new job if you're looking. So it's on one level, we deny 
that this exists. And on a different level, we do everything in our power to take advantage and leverage that network. Um, so another part of adulthood that is uh, that looms large, we spend most of our adult life doing this, is our work. And I thought this your chapter on the history of work in regards to adulthood has is fascinating. How has it changed in the past 100 years? I mean, how do, how do we view our work now that's different than how, say, our grandfathers or maybe great-grandfathers may have viewed their work? If you ask someone who they are, they are their job. People do not answer in terms of their religion. They do not answer in terms of their ethnicity in general. They do not answer in terms of their family. They answer in terms of what they do. Our jobs are incredibly important to us. They are the source of our very identity. And this becomes evident when you see uh, Americans today take fewer vacation days than ever, uh, at least uh, in the uh, modern period, that is the last hundred years. Uh, Americans only take 16 days of vacation a year. This is extraordinary. Uh, It's as if we live to work, which Europeans have long accused us of doing. What's interesting to me is that American history has a long tradition of alienation towards work. Long before Karl Marx, Americans were talking about wage slavery. They were talking about the dehumanization of work. If you read Herman Melville, uh, you'll see tales that talk about the mindlessness of work. And this is a long time ago. But what's striking to me is that the language of alienation from work seems to have disappeared from American society. Uh, The kind of notion that work shouldn't be all your life is about has dissipated. Uh, This is scary. Uh, It's not a product of some corporate plot to brainwash people to work harder. Clearly, this was self-chosen by Americans to embrace work. And it's not just, of course, men who've embraced work, but women as well. And many, many Americans find retirement the most difficult transition of all, because everything that was meaningful in their life was tied up with work, including their sociability. So it's scary that we've lost the uh, the old view, take this job and shove it, uh, the kind of view, you know, popularized not so long ago in movies like 9 to 5, and we act as if you can find the meaning of life exclusively in your work. Yeah, that's interesting because... Um... I see that a lot, particularly in the online world, where you can find 
coaches, life coaches, um, programs you can take where the whole goal is to help you find your life's calling, which is basically it's your life's work and how you can make money simply doing the thing you love. Um, But the problem with Freud once said that the meaning of life lies in two things, love and work. But he's wrong, of course, because the well-rounded life actually has way more than that in it. Uh, It's hard, I think, these days to see that, to see that there are other worlds that are worth spending time and energy on. We've become narrow. We've become focused. We're incredibly productive and then one has to ask for what? Yeah, I ask myself that a lot. Um, so you mentioned earlier about uh, the angst of parenthood, um, but adulthood itself is filled with lots of of angst. And I think we're all familiar with the, the midlife crisis. But now you're, you're even hearing uh, reports of that there's a quarter life crisis of people in their twenties who are experiencing this anxiety about there's yeah it's an existential crisis. Um, what, what causes that angst in adulthood and why is it starting earlier and earlier? When there was a clearly defined roadmap through adulthood, when there were clearly defined gender norms and clearly defined expectations, what me worry, as Alfred E. Newman would say. (laughs) But when there aren't, when there's no well-defined navigational tool, no GPS that tells us that we're on track, when we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with consumer delights, how can you ever feel happy where you are? The grass always will appear greener someplace else. And you will feel that things could be better than they are. And maybe they could be. Uh, The fact is that many people are now able to reinvent themselves multiple times and move onward and become truly the author of their own life course. And who am I to say that there's anything wrong with that? Each of us has to determine that for ourselves. But the price we pay for that freedom is anxiety. This is what Kierkegaard, like the existentialist, would would say. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think you also mentioned in your book as well is that modernity has given us, with the technology and science that we have, has given us sometimes a false sense of control over life. And when things don't turn out the way we do, the way that we think they should turn out, uh, it's upsetting because like you think, I should have control over this, but you don't. Yeah, there are two cultures, I would argue. There's a culture of chance and a culture of control. If you are poor, you're much more likely to embrace the culture of chance. Uh, you will be much more likely to play the lottery or to gamble 
because maybe luck will come your way. But for many well-educated adults, they inhabit the culture of control. After all, they made their own way in life, and they're going to do everything in their power to make sure that their kids uh, are successful and don't suffer downward mobility. But a culture of control is in many ways an illusion. Illness or accident can strike any time. It can strike randomly and unexpectedly. One of the shocks that I've had growing up is discovering the number of people who've died who I was close to. Uh, we sort of think for good reason, that people live a long time right now, uh, that most people will live into their 70s or 80s, and yet about one in six men and one in nine women will die between the age of 20 and 65, which is way higher, I think, than most of us assume. And they did not die because they were bad people. They did not die because they had bad lifestyles. They died by chance and misfortune for the most part. And that's a scary world to live in. It should remind us a bit of the world of our ancestors where they had much less control than we do today. But it also means that we need all kinds of support systems because sometime the bell will ring for thee. Uh, Stephen, this has been a fascinating discussion. Before we end up, one last question, because um, I get this question a lot from our podcast listeners and the, the guys who read the website. And the question is like, how do I know I'm a man? Right. There's, you have guys in their thirties who will say like, I still feel like I'm 18 years old. Um, with this breakdown of the traditional markers of adulthood, how do we know when we've become an adult? I mean, what is there some, is it a psychological thing? I mean, or are there, what is it that we can know that we're an adult? First, I think when we're financially independent, you have to be able to support yourself. And if you can't do that, then I think you're not really an adult. You're a dependent. And then the second thing is the assumption of responsibilities for other people. Uh, almost all adults bear a lot of responsibility for children, for a partner, a significant other, often for siblings, increasingly for older parents. And this can be a tremendous burden. Uh, it's a burden that uh, few of us were really prepared for, and so it comes a bit as a shock. But it's one of those things that defines adulthood. And then I'll add something else to the mix. True adulthood ultimately comes with failure. All of us uh, have, when we're young, infinite 
expectations for our future success. The world truly does seem to be our oyster. And after all, at our college graduation, we're told that we're the most promising generation on earth and that anything is possible. And as you grow older, you discover it's not true. Options narrow and the chances to do anything at all in your life disappear. And it's how we cope with that that determines what kind of adult we are. Are we someone who eschews these responsibilities? Is, are we someone who does not want to take up the burden of maturity? Or are we someone who will embrace that and yet at the same time will maintain a kind of playfulness and humor and youthfulness no matter what their age. So there's two paths we can go down. We can become morose and depressed and whine and complain, or we can thrive on the freedom that we have and take advantage of the dependencies, the interdependencies that we've woven, and make them meaningful. If you want to have a happy adulthood, there's no choice which path you need to take. Very good. Well, Stephen Mintz, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. It's been a joy to talk to you. My guest today was Stephen Mintz. He's the author of the book, The Prime of Life, and you can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And it's the holiday season. Uh, If you haven't already, check out our Art of Manliness store. We just released a new wallet, one of a kind, can't get anywhere else, called the Detective's Wallet. We've got deals going on, free shipping for orders over $100. Go check that out. Your purchases in the Art of Manliness store support the Art of Manliness podcast, as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. As always, thanks so much for your support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.